0: I'm going to talk to you today about maybe one of the more difficult issues that we as Christians grapple with. And it's the issue of forgiveness. I'll be taking you to the 18th chapter of Matthew and reading a portion of that starting in the 21st verse in a few minutes. But I'm not going to read that yet. And what I want to do is I have found it, I think, very informative and very helpful, is help give you the context for why Jesus gave this parable about the unmerciful servant, which I said I will read in just a little bit. Knowing the background of it and what prompted that helps for a better understanding of it. So the 18th chapter of Matthew is a a passage that records the flow of Jesus' teaching on discipleship matters, uh, a variety of different subjects that he wants to train his disciples in, and all of these are applicable to us. We need to be discipled along these lines as well. The, The first thing, I'm just going to try and briefly go through this before I actually get down to the parable, is the disciples come to him and they ask him this question, Who's the greatest in the kingdom? And he answers that question for them, and I'm not going to go into that in detail, but it's just, it's a discipleship moment. They come up with a question, and he says, I need to address this as I'm training you for a proper attitude and proper understanding of matters. Then after he addresses that issue of them asking who's the greatest in the kingdom, he goes on to teach them about uh, discipleship and humility. Next, he transitions to another discipleship matter, and that's the subject of offenses and the process, or the processes, of forgiveness and restoration. Now, he does this in a twofold manner. First, he teaches them about forgiveness and uh, restoration as concerns the church. How do we deal with it on that level? Then, next, he deals with it on a personal level, which is where we finally get into the parable today. What does it mean to deal with the issue of forgiveness uh, in my life, in your life, not just with regard to wrongdoing in the church and how do we process that, but what about when somebody has done you wrong? So you see the multiple levels that Jesus addresses. And when he gets into the, the part about the offenses on a corporate level, Uh, We're talking about dealing with a fellow believer who has committed some moral failure. A brother sees a brother taken in a sin. And how do you deal with that? And Jesus addresses that. And he tells them that basically you first want to go to somebody and you want to encourage them that they need to repent. And if they don't receive that, you escalate that and take witnesses with you and say we've come in your best interest. We would like to encourage you to repent. And if they don't receive that, then Jesus said the the final uh, appeal is to now encourage them to come before the church. Thank you very much, Jason. And let the church be the final arbiter of this, this, uh, this problem. Now, we don't we don't practice this uh, very successfully in the modern church today. The first problem we have with doing this is we have not successfully cultivated within the church a culture of mutual accountability. It, it seems rather we have cultivated a culture of everybody uh, is kind of their their own authority and their, their own accountability partner, and you don't come to church expecting somebody else to speak into your life regarding your failures. You might allow the pastor to do that in a general sense, as long as he doesn't know anything specific about you. And you conclude, well, I confided in him. Now he's preaching from the pulpit on my life. And that happens sometimes, at least people think that that's what. Think they've been parked on their roof and listening down their chimney sometimes. How many of you know that oftentimes that's the way the Holy Spirit really operates? He's addressing you, and I didn't really know anything, though you thought I did. But we don't have this culture where we're free to come into the church and say, "Uh, I will respond if somebody has a legitimate concern with my life. We generally get a little bit huffy and, and it's almost an attitude, hey, who are you to talk to me? That's between me and God, you leave me alone. So we have ignored the fact that we as a church really are a family that we really should be sensitive and humble enough to be able to respond to somebody who cares enough about us to come to us and say, I'm concerned, I see that you've done something, and I would appeal to you to make things right with God. I don't know what your attitude is. I don't know how you would respond to that. But I think typically we find it difficult to humble ourselves to that kindness. Of a confrontation now the second problem we have with that is we we're generally ineffective trying to hold others to accountability when we ourselves are not accountable when we ourselves have our own unresolved problems in our life so that's the second way people are going to react you're going to come tell me and you're doing this So we're a little bit skeptical about anybody else having the authority to speak into our lives because the first thing we're going to do is size them up and tell them why they're not qualified to speak to us. Now this is a pattern, a template that Jesus laid out for the church that would be beneficial for the church, but we are resisting allowing ourselves to have that kind of relationship with one another. So I I, I think at this point I want to pause and say, You know, I think we really need to seriously consider what it means to be a church body, to be accountable one to another. And even if they're wrong, if we can, in the Christian spirit, thank them for their concern and say, I'm not sure that I agree with this, but I do thank you. you care enough about that to speak into my life rather than getting huffy and going to another church. Which brings me to the third problem we have with doing this is when you try to nail somebody down, even if it's legitimate, do you know one of the escape plans they have is, I will not answer for my actions here. I will not respond to your appeal. I will go someplace else with a new start where nobody knows my business and they'll just accept me like I am. The fourth problem is when we attempt to exercise discipline against a non-repentant member... Now, people take sides, and you split the congregation. That has happened countless times that I have witnessed in the times that I have been a minister. We've been put in a position where you just can't let things go. You have to address it, and people who know nothing about it choose sides. Now, you've got another problem you developed. And after Jesus addresses this, about how to deal with undisciplined members he comes to this very familiar verse you've heard this a number of times but i i would say the chances are great that you've read this and taken it out of context here's the verse that's familiar to you jesus says within this context of this discipleship teaching and this discipline of uh, uh, errant members church members or fellow believers, he says, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. How many of you have heard that verse? Most of you who are Bible readers, you've heard that. How many of you have ever realized the context in which he spoke that? It's almost a, one of those stand-alone verses. You know it, you've heard it, you can probably quote it very, very closely to some version that you study. But have you ever realized it was within the context of Jesus teaching us how we are to speak into the lives of other people and hold them accountable? Therefore, when Jesus says, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, whatever you ever loose on earth will be loosed in heaven, he didn't just blurt that out without having some relationship to what he was speaking about. The binding and the loosing refers to the issue of either forgiving or restoring or executing discipline against a non-repentant individual. So what Jesus is saying, if you're acting in a biblical manner, you have authority to forgive or to move somebody, encourage them to move to repentance. That's the binding and the loosing. You have heavenly authority to do this because Jesus laid out the template, said this is the way it is to be done. If you do it in a biblical manner, you're doing it correctly. But we've always taken that out of context and, and applied that in some manner that Jesus says that whatever I speak, I, I have powers to bind things on earth that will be bound in heaven. And then when we ask you to explain that, you say, well, I'm not sure what it means. But I, I, I believe I've got the authority to do it. What do you mean bind things in heaven? What do you mean lose things in heaven? Well, if you understand, that means that you have heaven's authority to carry out the discipline in a biblical manner. Now it all makes sense. And then we come to a second familiar verse that we like to take out of context as well because we're great at taking things out of context. And he says again, I truly tell you that if two of you on earth agree about anything they ask for, it'll be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three gather in my name, there I am with them. Once again, it's another one of those that serves real conveniently as a standalone verse. But it becomes very informative when we put it back in its context. The word anything, that's a tricky one. I tell you, if two... Of you on earth agree about anything they ask for, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. Now, who can I find that will come up here right now and agree with me that I'm going to get a lifetime supply of Popeye's chicken? This is going to serve me well because he said anything. This is a lot of where Naaman and Clement come from. Whatever you ask. Two or three of you get together, and it shall be done. The problem is, when you take it out of context, it, it, mean, it, it implies that anything you agree on, that God is obligated to answer your prayer and your demand. It, it makes him a, a vending machine. All you've got to do is just, just do the formula, and God has to respond to that. He he responds to unified human committees on anything, because he said anything. But in context, it points back to verse 18: that if you stay in complete agreement with biblical principles for resolving conflict, you can be 100% assured God will honor that. That's what it means. And so this sets Peter to thinking as he's listening to all this discipleship that Jesus is sharing with him, just pouring into Peter's life, and it prompts a question in Peter's mind. And he pipes up and he kind of changes the subject a little bit because it, 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 it really set him to thinking. He said, well, Lord, on a personal level, how many times, while we're kind of talking about it, how many times... Do I need to forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? And he says up to seven times. It's, he didn't just pull that out of the air. See, there was a Jewish belief that you were obligated to forgive seven times, and after that, all bets are off. I did my seven. Now I can take vengeance. So he was just reiterating what the Jews had come to customary belief. He said, well, how many times? Is that a good rule? Seven times? And uh, Jesus kind of blew that one out of the water for him. You know, the, the new number wasn't literally 70 times 7. The new number was you just don't stop forgiving. That's going to bring us to the difficult subject today. The subject of forgiveness. Because whenever Jesus answered that, You've got to forgive and forgive and forgive and forgive. Then he said, Now let me tell you a parable that will help illustrate what I'm trying to teach you. Understand that what Christ is teaching was for his disciples, but it's just as much for us. We understand the church might have to take drastic measures against somebody who refuses to repent, but there's still an issue of what do we what are we expected to do when somebody has personally offended us it would be meaningless for me to have you vote at this point how many of you have ever been offended by somebody because you have somebody has offended you and today right now you are a testimony of how you have dealt with that you either still are carrying that or you've dealt with it a long time ago, it still either makes your blood boil to think about it, or you've put it at the foot of the cross. So we're going to talk about this issue of forgiveness. I want to read the uh, 23rd verse. Verse. I guess I can start there because I've kind of alluded to the 21st verse and 22nd verse where Peter asks the question. But in the 23rd verse, after Peter's question about how many times do I forgive, then Jesus says, he launches into this parable. It's a teaching point. Therefore, he says, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. As he began the settlement, a man who owed him 10,000 bags of gold was brought to him since he was not able to pay the master ordered that he and his wife and his children and all that he had be sold to repay the debt. I don't know how many, is anybody following along in their Bible? It didn't say bags of gold in your Bible perhaps, what did it say? Talents? Yes it did. So since he was not able to pay this debt the master ordered that he and his wife and his children And all that he had be sold to repay the debt. Man, That's a pretty drastic punishment for having this huge debt. And, And at this, the servant fell on his knees before the king. And he said, please be patient with me. I'll pay you back everything. And the servant's master took pity on him. And he canceled the debt. And he let him go. My, that's a powerful story. I know it moves kind of fast, but these people who are listening to this story, they are so impacted by the drastic contrasts that Jesus is bringing out in this. But when that servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred silver coins. And he grabbed him and began to choke him and said, pay back what you owe me. His fellow servant fell on his knees and begged him almost verbatim what this man had done before the king. Please be patient with me. I'll pay you back. And the man refused. And instead, he went off and had the man thrown into prison until he could pay the debt. When the other servants saw what happened, they went and reported that back to their king, being totally outraged by this man's conduct. And then the man, the master, called that first servant back in. You wicked servant, I canceled all that debt of yours. You begged me. I responded. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant? Just like I had on you. And in anger, his master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all that he owed. And then Jesus concludes with this. This is how my heavenly Father will treat you unless you forgive your brother or your sister from your heart. Now, let's go to the parable, what it means to us. First of all, the thing that leaps out at us is we have been forgiven a massive debt. That's the reason Jesus shared this. He wanted people to understand not just a little story about a a servant and a king, but he wanted you to make the application. He wanted you to see in that first scene, and there's three scenes in this. There's the scene of the servant and the king, the scene of the servant and the servant, and the third scene of the servant returning to the king. Each scene builds an important truth. And the first scene builds an important truth that there is a massive debt that has been forgiven to us. The talent, where somebody said that the talent was the word that was used, the talent was the largest denomination, monetary denomination in that culture. Nothing was bigger than a talent. When you got to a talent, the only way you had more is to have two talents. Ten talents. There wasn't a mega talent denomination of money. So when you got to the talent, you was at the highest. And then the use of that, that, way, that the word that is translated in the NIV, 10,000 talents, or 10,000 bags of gold, was actually the way the translators translated the Greek word for myriad. And myriad could translate into our, if you want to take the dynamic intent of myriad, we could say gazillion. Melody said, her said millions. That's what it's saying. Millions of the largest denomination, which no Jew owned that kind of money but that would put them in the mind of the ultra-rich if they were to think throughout their history who had money that they thought was gazillions? Kings. Filthy rich. They owned more money than they could ever imagine or they could count. They were filthy rich people. So the Jews were able to identify with this man that owned, owned a king's debt. Just more than you could describe and he's forgiven. That's what it spoke to the listening audience. That was the dynamic. That was the impact they had on hearing this story that Jesus told. There was a news article I read in the past week or two about a mega in Texas that had taken on the project of paying off the medical bills for some of the people. I don't know how many of you have ever been strapped by medical bills, but I think we all understand how quickly any one of us, how easily any one of us could be put in a position where our medical bills could literally wipe us out. You know we, we think about thank God for insurance But what if you don't have insurance My wife and I did not have health insurance For most of our ministry That poor lady sitting over there Had three kids without insurance And God was good to us The last one cost us about $4,000 Isn't that right? That's pretty cheap kids <laughs> The real expense began after they were born That was only the beginning. But to think going all three of them, and I don't want to get too personal, all three of them were Cicerean. No insurance. I don't recommend that. But God watches out for fools and little children and, and people that couldn't do anything to change their status. So this mega church is paying off staggering. Medical bills. Now you can just imagine in that community, the word gets around how many people are going to join that church. <laughs> have you ever had staggering bills that you just thought, this is the end? I, I, I don't know what I'm going to do. I cannot pay a half a million dollars. I don't have it. People who have had heart surgery, had cancer, had something where, if it, were it not for insurance, what would it have done to you? So we, we mention that to try and get a, a modern-day concept of what it means to have this kind of a debt forgiven. Can you imagine you having an overwhelming debt like that that you are despondent? You're saying, that this is the end. I, I won't have anything left. I don't know how I'm going to make it. I can't pay that kind of money. And then you, you, you get a notice in the mail. Your debt's been paid. How many of you are going to dance the happy dance? Yes, you are. Now you're beginning to understand what it really meant for that man to have that tremendous debt wiped clean simply because he bowed before the king and begged him for mercy. But that's nothing. I've tried to get you to empathize with the size of that, the impact of that. But I'm here to tell you that's nothing. That's peanuts. I want to tell you the real story. Whenever you knelt before the king. And you said, I can't gain entrance into heaven because my sins are too many. Because I have done too much. Because I can never pay the debt I have accumulated before a righteous God. The most righteous of those of you here today. Your sins are too many. You can't pay the debt. It's enormous. It's insurmountable. That only tries to exemplify in human terms what it's like. But it's peanuts compared to what we owed God because of our lifestyle. And you bowed before him. You said, God, I, what can I do? What, how can I pay this off? What kind of penance can I perform? And God says, there's nothing you can do. Well, God, what is, what is going to become of me? And God says, how about if I just forgive your debt? How about if I count it paid by Calvary? How about if I count the sacrifice of Jesus Christ satisfactory and you no longer owe anything to me? That's what the story is about. That's the miracle. So for those of you who are sitting here thinking, "Wow, I wish something like that would happen to me." It has. Or if it hasn't, it can. You come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ today. You can. you can come in a debtor, a hopeless, lost debtor, and you can leave free. Like the man who was sentenced for his crimes, that the judge is reading his sentence. The man sitting there without any response. As the judge reads, it's the death penalty for you. And he gets no reaction. The judge gets no reaction. Man, what's wrong with you? Don't you understand? You're going to be executed for what you've done. And the man doesn't respond. Have you nothing to say? And the man calmly reaches inside his coat and pulls out a piece of paper, unfolds it, that declares he has been forgiven by the king. No wonder he didn't have anything to worry about. When the king says, you are forgiven, it's settled. And see, the devil can't hold it over you, even though he tries to, even though he comes, and he tries to harass you with the kind of person you are and the mistakes you've made in your life, and he tries to continue to hold that against you. And sometimes you get so discouraged because you remember the things you've done and the people you've hurt. And the devil comes and keeps reminding you and keeps beating you down and keeps telling you you are worthless. I want you to reach inside of your soul. I want you to pull out the document that says, I have been forgiven by the king. You cannot hold that against me anymore. The second scenario teaches us that you are absolutely, unmistakably required to forgive. Forgive. The man who was forgiven myriad bags of gold went out, finds another man who owns him a few hundred pence. Now, it, if, if you try to put monetary value to this, it, it probably is a, is a waste of time. L- literally, a, a few hundred pence would probably be a few months' wages, but that wasn't the point. The point was, if you get a ratio here, the ratio was as much as 600000 To one or or maybe a million to one the difference between what this man owed and what the other man owed him so you look at the ratio what Jesus is just trying to do is speak in stark contrasts and not specific numbers so we grasp the contrast this man who has been forgiven throttles the man who owes a a millionth of what he has just been forgiven Shocking, scandalous, startling. And that poor servant does the same thing that the first man that falls on his knees and said, would you please forgive me? And the man grabs him by the throat and shakes him and rattles him. I'm not going to forgive you. I'm going to throw you in prison until it's all paid. And now we're upset because we I think all of us had expectations that the man who had been forgiven much should have learned a little bit what mercy was about and he didn't do it and then Jesus unveils that spiritual truth this is how my Heavenly Father will treat you unless you forgive your brother from your heart as the man is sent back to the king and the king takes back his mercy "I, I was good to you And you couldn't be good to somebody else. Now we come to the issue of forgiveness. The third scene teaches us this. Grab a hold of this, will you please? Because this is so important. This could cost you eternity. If you don't understand this, and if you don't process this, and you don't get this in your heart, this could cost you eternity. And that is you cannot enter the kingdom of God with unforgiveness in your heart, period. There's nothing more clear from this third scenario. You have been forgiven the ultimate debt. And you have a responsibility to forgive anybody who has offended you. And I know with the congregation we have here today, there is a chance. There is a possibility there is somebody here that you are still wrestling with unforgiveness in your heart because somebody has hurt you deeply. It goes all the way from somebody who goes back to their childhood and remembers that they've been molested by somebody. Or maybe it's been you've been the victim, a child as a child, the victim of a a family that broke up and you blame a father, you blame a mother. Who knows what the scenario is? I've just mentioned a couple that are so prominent. I had a Sunday school discipleship class. When people would join the church, I would take them through 13 weeks of discipleship. And I, I borrowed from the Billy Graham Association 33 uh, discipleship lessons. And we would go through several every Sunday. They were very simple things. One of those things was forgiveness. And I remember sitting in class, and we started on the issue of of, of forgiveness. And one of the students in the class stopped and said, You don't know what my father has done to me. I will never forgive him. And if you've gotten to the point in your life where somebody has done something to you that you have declared, I will never. You have willfully stated, I refuse to forgive. Based on what? Based on how heinous that crime was, that infraction, that offense was. And you don't understand when you're saying, I will never forgive. They don't lose any sleep. But you are killing your soul not only are you killing your soul and you're walking in bitterness every day, Jesus teaches us if you cannot forgive somebody else after you have been forgiven the debt that you had and you offended God and you brought that before him, he forgave you. You have no wiggle room. You have to forgive. And here's where people choke. Yes, but you don't know. It doesn't make any difference. You don't know what they did to me. It doesn't make any difference. That's not an exception to the rule. You don't know how badly they've hurt me. This doesn't make any difference. True story. It was recently told. I, I, I'm just going to touch on the, on, on the superficial uh, details of this, not getting too deep, but there was a, a woman who, who was uh, in wartime, she was raped, repeatedly and beaten. And carved, her body was carved by the enemy. She was just a civilian casualty of war. Permanently disfigured, permanently emotionally scarred. And when she was asked about this, true story. How do you deal with this? How do you feel about the people that did this to you? And she says, I'm looking for them. I want to find them. I want to tell them I've already forgiven them. How do you do that? How do you look at the people who've done something like that to you? I want to forgive them because you deserve peace of mind. You deserve to be set free from the bondages of unforgiveness. It doesn't make any difference that they were so wrong and you were innocent. What makes a difference is you have to be right with God. I don't feel like forgiving it. You know what? Forgiveness is not a feeling. It's a decision. And you might have to wake up every day of your life and choose to forgive. And you may not feel any better about it. But just speaking the words, God, I choose to forgive this day, will eventually heal you. But I'll guarantee you one thing, choosing to say I refuse to give will never bring you healing or freedom. You'll be bound for the rest of your life. And I fear for you when you stand before God and you made that conscious decision, I refuse. Because you think somehow that that is validating something that somebody did to you. It doesn't validate anything. It just rids you of an unnecessary burden you put it in God's hands? I choose to forgive. That's your path to healing. That's your entry ticket to heaven. Here's a quote. I want you to listen carefully to the quote. If you have the notes, you can keep it because it's, it's a little bit complex, but it says it so well. Author Peter Jones says the imperative of forgiveness, the mandate of forgiveness intrudes into our comfortable working arrangements with life. It exposes our cherished grudges. It discloses our hidden hostilities. It unmasks our guerrilla warfare. In other words, it grates against everything convenient and desirable within us to talk about forgiveness. We prefer, instead of dealing with that, to stew in our anger and our resentment and the way we treat others. But since God has forgiven us, we are obligated without exception to forgive those who have trespassed against us. Kind of sounds a little bit like a prayer you learned, doesn't it? Forgive us our trespasses in the same way that we forgive those who trespass against us. Bow your heads.